You're listening to the Doheny Podcast Network. The Doheny Eye Institute, working for all to see. Your host is Jody Becker. This time on the Doheny Podcast, we'll be talking with two cornea specialists, a member of the Doheny faculty and a Doheny fellow. Dr. Benjamin Burt is dedicated to treatment and research, including cornea transplants, cataract and LASIK surgery, and now cornea crosslinking, which we'll be talking about today. He's also an enthusiastic and well-liked teacher. Before joining the faculty at Doheny Eye Institute, Dr. Burt was a fellow at both Doheny and USC. He is joined today by Dr. Arpine Barsegian, who is a current Doheny Fellow. She's a graduate of the SUNY Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York, where she was also a resident. Dr. Burt and Dr. Barsegian have been working together in the emerging area of cornea crosslinking. So as this is a new treatment, can we hear first about how this was developed as a treatment for patients who are facing vision loss due to a thinning cornea? In the the U.S., it's been pretty new because it wasn't FDA approved until spring of 2016. But outside of the United States, it's been going on for much longer. The first published report about corneal collagen cross-linking uh, was actually done in 2003, uh, and that was done over in Europe. So that's kind of where this whole idea came to fruition. So what does the procedure do ideally for the patient? So what was found is that keratoconus or, or other forms of what we call corneal ectasia, so just a weak cornea that continues to change its shape, kind of had a time limit. So people would progress when they were younger, but for some reason when they would get into their 40s and above, we would very rarely see progression occur. And so we knew that something was happening just with time to strengthen the cornea. And what was found is that these collagen fibers in the cornea themselves just became more cross-linked as we got older. So the idea was to try to make the tissue stronger by accelerating that cross-linking process. And what was thought to be occurring is simple exposure to ultraviolet radiation throughout our lifetimes. And so by having a treatment which combines riboflavin with a high-dose treatment of ultraviolet A radiation, we can accelerate that cross-linking process and make the cornea much stronger much faster and ideally at a much younger age. So you actually stop it from continuing to change its shape. So for the patient, what does the treatment look like or what is the course of treatment? So the treatment itself, it begins with actually making the diagnosis that someone has an ectatic disease. So right now we have many different imaging devices that are able to measure the cornea in different ways and measure different parts of the cornea and give these indications if someone is at risk or actually has early keratoconus. So the earlier that it can be diagnosed, the better that it will be, since we basically arrest the progression of the hepatic disease by applying the treatment. From the patient perspective, once the diagnosis has been made and it's been demonstrated that it is continuing to change, then the patient undergoes the, the treatment itself. It's usually done one eye at a time. In very rare instances, it's done for two eyes. Uh, but the procedure itself is about an hour. The, the first 30 minutes are spent applying riboflavin drops to the eye 
about every two minutes. And then the second 30 minutes is actually applying the ultraviolet radiation. The recovery using the kind of standard of care treatment process now is not that comfortable. It's very similar to photorefractive keratectomy or PRK because we actually have to create a scratch on the surface of the eye in order for the riboflavin to penetrate deeply enough into the cornea. So there is a scratch that has to heal, which usually takes about three days or so to uh, occur. And so in those early 24 to 48 hours, there can be some significant pain and discomfort. And yet this is an improvement or a better alternative than the previous standard of care for a thinning cornea, I'm guessing, because typically that would involve a transplant. Is that right? Correct. So, so really, we had no way to prevent progression. And the statistics from older studies show that approximately 20% of patients who were diagnosed with keratoconus would go on at some point in their lifetime to need a, a corneal transplant. And corneal transplantation for keratoconus has also advanced, whereas before it would be a full thickness corneal transplant, meaning we replace all layers of the cornea. It then developed to just replacing the weak outer part of the cornea while leaving um, some of the patient's own cornea behind. And so that was a good step in the right direction because there were less episodes of corneal graft rejection. But this is a, a huge advancement because it can be applied before anyone even gets close to needing a transplant. And actually, since they've had it in Europe now for a little over a decade and a half, they have seen the statistics of the need for corneal transplantation for the indication of ectatic disease go down dramatically. And that's kind of what we're anticipating in the United States as well as this continues to be rolled out. And Dr. Barsegian, you're working alongside Dr. Burt. Can you talk a little bit about identifying good candidates for this treatment? Yeah, so uh, generally these are candidates who uh, have proven changes in their uh, keratometry, what we call their K-values, and in general, uh, patients who we see uh, who have progressing aphtasia. And the way that we look for that actually is through uh, modes of measuring these uh, keratometry values, including topography and pentacam. And once we see that there's a advancement, significant advancement over a certain time period, that's when um, we generally suggest corneal cross-linking. There are certain contraindications to it. For example, I believe the history of herpes infection in the eye is a contraindication. Um, but generally, uh, these are individuals in their um, mid-teens to early 20s who have documented changes or progression um, in their ectasia and their keratoconus, for example. And you talked a little bit about some of the challenges with the treatment, challenges for patients once they're home and are living with the procedure? These patients are often, I mean, they're they're uncomfortable for uh, at least a few days uh, and they, you know, need um, glasses usually on the kind of most of the time because they're pretty sensitive to light and they are in some pain and we usually do prescribe painkillers to keep them comfortable. What I would, would add to that as well, certainly they want to have someone who's around to kind of help them the, the first day, day and a half. 
I usually tell patients um, who are working or have obligations in school that they shouldn't have anything serious coming up for at least a, a week or so. Because even after the pain has diminished, the vision continues to fluctuate. And usually when, when people are keratoconic, they're already in hard contact lenses and using other technologies to try to get the best vision possible. So their goals are to get really get back into their contact lenses. And certainly you can't really recommend that until the surface of the eye has healed. So they do feel a little bit handicapped uh, for those first three to five days, certainly. And for some patients, it can actually be a little bit longer than that as well. So kind of giving yourself that time to heal, making sure that you have things in place so that you're not going to have outside stress affect the, the healing process is, is important. So with this technique being relatively new for patients in the United States, I'm just curious to hear from both of you because, Dr. Burt, you have been operating and helping patients over several years. Dr. Barsagian, you're a fellow now and starting to assist patients. Do you think that this will become the standard of care and it will evolve to a place where the corneal transplant will occur much less frequently? I think that it has potential to. I, I think that it just it's just a matter of whether or not you know patients are uh, proper candidates for this procedure and whether or not they are kind of caught in the right time period when they're truly progressing. And in, in that case, collagen cross-linking is, uh, you know, a great procedure. What do you think, Dr. Bird? So, I mean, I certainly would say that we're going to hopefully see a reduction in the number of corneal transplants that are done for ectatic diseases. I think the challenge with really pushing that forward is identifying these patients as young as possible. Keratoconus in, in particular, since it's, it's kind of the most well-studied, has shown to have the most progression during puberty. And the FDA approval and the studies that have been done are really looking more at patients who are 14 years of age or older. So that's kind of at the tail end of puberty. So we even need to try to get it expanded to younger patients. And again, identifying them as early as possible. And I think that that is uh, eventually going to show significant reduction, not just in the need for corneal transplants, but even into just the, the morbidity of ectatic disease, maybe prevent them from even needing to be in hard contact lenses and they can continue just to wear regular glasses and still get adequate vision. So I'm curious about what you were saying. Is it a question of self-identification? Do all of the patients who might benefit from this procedure know that they are potentially candidates because of what's happening with their vision? These are usually patients who, you know, will, if they have a diagnosis of ectasia or keratoconus, we generally follow them uh, pretty closely, I would say every few months to a year. And we, especially during the ages of, of puberty or right, really kind of at the beginning of puberty is when they really start to progress. And especially allergic conjunctivitis or allergies and rubbing the eye uh, has been shown to be um, kind of a possible risk factor for progression and development of keratoconus later. So it's just, a, I think it's a matter of, of learning 
early uh, as early as possible when they have when they start to develop astigmatism and changes in their vision, uh, and then going ahead with the appropriate testing for topography and pentacam to try to diagnose keratoconus or help diagnose keratoconus, and then monitoring them very closely after all. You know, some of these referrals may come from, even from pediatric ophthalmologists who might diagnose this quite early or as early as possible. Oftentimes, these children don't really show changes until kind of maybe right at the beginning of puberty and then they like very quickly start to start to progress. And so it's very important to kind of see them and during that time period, monitor for progression and offer it as a potential treatment option. And I think to piggyback on that, a, a lot of people don't necessarily know that they have the sure. condition. There is a genetic uh, connection that we are aware of, so it can run in some families. But if you don't have the family history, a lot of people who we treat don't really know what's going on until one year they go in for their annual eye exam and their vision can no longer be corrected with normal glasses. Got it. That then usually forces additional testing to be done and a further investigation. And a lot of times that's when the diagnosis is made. So sometimes they've already had progression of the disease uh, in order to even make the initial diagnosis and before they get referred to see us to consider any of these treatment options. But I think, you know, the, the major advancements in screening that has been done, is, as Dr. Barsegian was mentioning, we had topography initially, which images the surface of the cornea to see if there's any irregular elevations on the surface. Now we have things like the pentacam, which is what's called tomography, which doesn't just image the front of the cornea, but it also images the back of the cornea, and it's able to give us a thickness profile as well, and many different metrics that allow us to identify indirect signs that someone may be at risk of developing an ectatic disease. And finally, you know, there's there's even newer imaging coming out, looking at just the thickness of different layers of the cornea, in particular, the surface layer, the epithelium, which a lot of people are, are indicating may be the earliest change to show that there is some ectasia or some weakening that's occurring. So I think with these machines and with them becoming more available, there may be more screening that will be done, even if someone just has a mild change of their prescription, instead of waiting for a, a big shift to cause um, uh, or kind of force the further investigation into what's going on. Before we wrap things up, I'd love to hear a little bit about how the two of you are working together and what the significance of the Doheny Fellowship is in this research. Arpine is in her second month of her fellowship with us now. And so it's kind of getting introduced to all of these technologies and all of these things that exist in order to further her own education so that she'll be able to take this knowledge and then apply it when, when she's out in practice as well. And again, this is kind of making sure that the community is aware that this exists. Again, it's, it's only been FDA approved for three years and um, it's slowly becoming more and more uh, popular as a, a treatment once people know that it's there. And so we make sure that uh, she gets involved with all the different stages. So screening um, the patients and, and evaluating them to the actual procedure itself. 
been a wonderful experience working with Dr. Byrne. I've learned so much just uh, in diagnosing and as well as just literally getting involved in the procedures, dropping the riboflavin, you know, seeing the riboflavin seep through and, and seeing what that means under a slit lamp. I mean, because it's such a new procedure, I'm very excited to, you know, wherever I end up after to kind of bring this procedure to whichever practice or institution I end up working for later and to patients uh, who I think would be fantastic candidates for it. Dr. Barsigian and Dr. Burt, thank you both so much for sharing information about this procedure newly available to patients who might otherwise require a corneal transplant. It's groundbreaking. It's available at Doheny. And Dr. Barsigian, as you go on in your career, you'll have the opportunity to continue educating other practitioners and patients about this procedure. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank Thank you. you very much for having us. If you'd like to support the work of the Doheny Eye Institute, please visit the website at doheny.org. The Doheny Eye Institute, at the forefront in eradicating eye disease for nearly 70 years, is dedicated to providing state-of-the-art clinical services and supporting leading researchers in the quest for treatments that stabilize and improve the precious sense of sight. Doheny is now affiliated with UCLA Stein Eye Institute. For more information about our doctors and their innovative work in the quest for better vision, visit our website, doheny.org.